So last week we started a series going through uh, the accounts of Elijah and Elisha. And because I'm a creative and marketing genius, we're calling this series Elijah and Elisha. So I was very proud of that name. But we said uh, that we're looking at this time in Israel's history when Israel was a nation in decline. Actually, it was, there were two nations in decline at this point. But the, the time of um, Moses and Joshua, when all this momentum was being built for this people, that, that was gone. The economic and military superiority that existed during the reigns of David and Solomon had been dwindling away for generations. And this once proud nation was now two fledgling nations, Judah to the south and Israel to the north. And it's been about 100, 150-ish years since King David and the height of Israel's glory as a nation. But it was still about 100 years from the time that God said, enough is enough, these people aren't going to turn back. And he allowed the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to come in and kind of teach these people a lesson on his behalf. So this is kind of this middle era of this nation's history. And in the middle of this, we have these two prophets back to back, Elijah and Elisha. Last week, we saw how God spent three years teaching Elijah that he could be trusted. He gave Elijah food and water in a time where there was a great famine and drought throughout the land and nobody else was getting food and water. But Elijah was taken care of miraculously first through birds. Birds showed up and fed him every day. I don't know that like we in our modern sensibilities would find that to be very clean. Like, hey, don't birds carry disease? And yet every day Elijah was like delivered a nice fresh loaf of bread or whatever it was from a bird. Um, And then once the brook that he was at dried up, God said, hey, I have another plan for you. And he went and he stayed with a widow who God provided for her and her son by saying, the food source that you have is not going to dry up. It's not going to run out for as long as the prophet is with you. And then in the midst of all of that, this widow's son dies and Elijah prays and prays and prays and prays for him. And God restores his life to him. Three years, God spent showing Elijah, you can trust me while Elijah was in seclusion, while he was living privately so that when the time came, Elijah could be God's champion publicly. And that's what we're looking at this morning in first Kings chapter 18. We have, it's a fairly long passage. It's 40 some verses. um, And we're not going to be able to cover all of them. So I would challenge you spend 15, 20, 25 minutes this week with a study Bible, something that has some notes in it um, to give you some insight into some of the passages that we're not going to get a chance to look at because there's just some really exciting and fascinating stuff that happens here. So that's where we've been and that's where we're going this morning. We're going to see what happens after the three years of preparation when Elijah shows up back in public. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're digging into 1 Kings chapter 18. God, you are good and you are faithful. God, I pray that as we look at this text this morning, we wouldn't see it as a Bible story to be told to our kids over in Harbor Kids or for vacation Bible school, but rather it would be something that we apply to our everyday lives. Father, may we be reminded as the people of Israel were reminded that we cannot serve two gods at the same time. We cannot have two main priorities. Rather, we should choose the one true God and serve him faithfully. 
Father, I thank you that you are that one true God and that you lovingly and gently call us to yourself. May we respond to that call this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last night, Luke, our fourth grader, and I uh, went to the Buccaneers game. We were gifted some tickets, and he had never been to a football game of any kind before. And so we went and we took in everything. We, we did all this stuff. We got to the stadium about two hours before kickoff, which was probably overkill. Um, but, you know, we, we did all the things. We went and saw the pirate ship, and we, we, there was a DJ playing very loud music. It made me feel very old. That I was like, it's too loud. Let's go inside. Um, but we, we went to where there was air conditioning and overpriced food, and we did all of the things, and, and we had a great time. He learned what to yell when the Bucks get a first down. He learned how to cover his ears when the cannons go off. All the things that you want um, a, a kid to learn at a football game, he was able to learn, and we had a fantastic time. The crazy thing, though, was as good of a time as we had is that it wasn't actually a real game. Like It, it didn't count for anything. It was a preseason game. The starters were out by the end of the first quarter, and a bunch of guys that are going to be you know, working for Enterprise until next offseason were there, you know, playing professional football in front of a 70% filled stadium. And we yelled and we cheered and we ate and we took all the pictures just like the other, you know, 35, 40,000 fans did. But we all knew that it wasn't a real game. We, we just loved the competition so much that we're like, hey, even though this game doesn't actually count for anything, we're still going to come and we're still going to cheer because we, we love a good competition. There are six months with no football and now football's back. And we have people to cheer for and people are getting tackled. And so we're going to yell and we're going to cheer, even though it's the substitutes playing. We like competition. We like knowing who's the best. And if not, who's the best, we at least like knowing who's the better of the two, three or four or however it may, however many it may be. And if you can be like, all right, Andrew, that's fine. But I don't like sports. You don't have to like sports to like competition. I spent every Thursday night for the past 10 weeks watching a bunch of wilderness survival experts uh, hanging out in the woods of northern Canada, seeing which one would leave first. They all got dropped off and said, all right, don't die. And they had a little button they could push. And uh, the guy that won was out there for like 65 days just by himself in the woods. And he won a half a million dollars. We like watching competitions. We like to know who's the best. As a society, we have shows like the Great British Baking Competition, and people watch it on purpose. <laughs> HGTV has a competition where they determine who should be the next host on HGTV. And then a few years later, once that person has been a host on HGTV, they compete with other hosts on HGTV to decide who can design the best beach house on HGTV. The whole thing is just perpetuated on competitions, competitions, and competitions. Um, we watch singing competitions. We watch dating competitions. We watch smart people compete on Jeopardy, and we watch idiots compete on everything else. In general, we are big fans of competitions. Some of you spent hours of your week this past week watching a political debate for an election that won't even happen for another 14 months. We like competition. We like to know who's the best, and we want to choose the person that we like to be the best and cheer for them, and that's just something that we do. Sometimes there is absolutely no consequences 
at stake in the competition. The winner of Lego Masters is not going to be setting any foreign policy, thank goodness. Um, most of the sports that I watch, which is way too, too much, too many, um, most of them will have no actual impact on the real world except for my mood. But then there's also this competition that we are all dealing with each and every day and the tension that we're dealing with of this competition every day of the competition between right and wrong, between good and evil, between moral and immoral. All of us face choices every day throughout our lives that have real consequences. And sometimes it feels messy or difficult to pick the right side, even though you know what the right side is because life is hard. And sometimes the easy way seems like you could get away with it. In Elijah's day, there was a social and an economic pressure pushed to the people of Israel into bowing to the God favored by Queen Jezebel. Jezebel worshiped a Canaanite fertility God named Baal and her husband, King Ahab, wanting to keep her happy and her wealthy foreign king of a father happy said, you know what, maybe I'm going to, maybe I'm going to worship this God too. And because of that, the nation of Israel began to say, well, I guess maybe it's okay if we kind of start worshiping this God as well. The people followed suit. It was the path of least resistance. And even though they knew better, they went along with it until Elijah showed up and said, hey, let's have a little competition. All right. Like I like competition. You like competition. We all like competition. Let's do this. Let's make it so that whichever God is the best proves himself to us once and for all. And that is the God that we worship. And they said, okay, that, that sounds like a plan. So the events of chapter 18 start more than three years after the events at uh, the beginning of chapter 17. There has not been a drop of rain. There has not been dew in the morning. There has been no moisture in the air. It's the opposite of Florida for three plus years. And that is when chapter 18 begins. And chapter 18 begins, get this, at verse 1, because that's how numbers work. Um, it says this, After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. It, Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed to the ground and said, is it really you, my Lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master Elijah is here. So we meet this new character. His name is Obadiah. He works for Ahab and Jezebel. He runs their household, but he is also secretly faithful to Jehovah, the one true God. He has bravely risked his life to protect the prophets that Jezebel is actively hunting and killing, but he will not publicly acknowledge his faith and his allegiance to the one true God. This guy is like so much of the nation of Israel at this time. He is playing both sides. He says, here's what I think is the right thing to do, but this is the expedient thing to do. I'm going to keep my good job working for the king and the queen. But in my spare time, I'm going to try to, you know, protect these people that the queen is unjustly killing. 
and he is running Ahab's errands. And as he is out looking for any water or any grass that might be left, he runs into Elijah and Elijah essentially says, listen, this ends today. Go tell your boss that I'm here and go tell him that I want to talk. And you might be thinking, Obadiah, that name sounds familiar. Is he the same Obadiah that wrote that one very, very short minor prophet book that we have at the end of the Old Testament? Um, to which I would say, maybe. We, we don't know. Um, there's some tradition that says that this Obadiah that we might meet here in 1 Kings 18 became so devout in his faith that he was later a prophet used by God to write um, a, a book of the Old Testament. But the events in that book seem to center around a nation in which he did not live um, and in a century that he didn't live. And so a lot of modern scholars say, no, there, it wasn't that uncommon of a name. Maybe there was two Obadiahs. But if you read through Isaiah or Jeremiah, there's lots of books of prophecy that contain events that aren't happening right when and where that prophet is alive. So in my mind, I like to think maybe this is the same Obadiah. I hope it's the same Obadiah. Isn't that a great story? Here's this guy who is this fence sitter. God shows up, he intervenes, and now he is a fully fledged follower of Jehovah and God uses him to write a portion of our Bible. I hope that's the story. We'll get to heaven one day and we'll say, hey, uh, could the real author of Obadiah raise his hand and we'll see if there's two Obadiahs or not. I don't know. I hope it's him, but we don't know. That's really not important to the story. But it is interesting that there is a book of prophecy named after an Obadiah. And here we have this guy whose name is Obadiah. He has an affinity for God's prophets, and he is trying to be faithful while also trying to stay alive with this evil king and queen. So Obadiah brings Ahab to meet Elijah, and the two are face-to-face for the first time in more than three years. It's been more than three years. Everything that Elijah said was going to happen, happened. He said, hey, it's not going to rain. It's not going to sweat. It's not going to nothing. It's going to be pretty miserable for you. And Ahab was like, yeah, okay, that's not how weather works. And sure enough, Elijah was right. So now here we are three plus years later, and they are face to face for the first time. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel. Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Warren Wearsby points out that as Ahab called Elijah the troublemaker of Israel, he was hiding the fact that he was the one who had actually caused all these problems in the land. Surely Ahab knew the terms of God's covenant between himself and his people. Ahab understood that the blessings of the Lord depended on the obedience of the king and his people. We can't read this story without thinking, oh, Ahab, what a jerk. What are you doing calling him the, you know, the troublemaker? We can all see that this is you that have caused all these troubles. But how often when we need to be rebuked, when we needed to be corrected for our sin, do we see the person who is willing to tell us the hard truth as the bad guy? I just can't believe that person would interject themselves into my life that way. I can't believe they would speak up that way. We can look at this story and say, Ahab is so blind, he can't even recognize his sin. 
He can't recognize that his poor leadership is destroying the nation. He thinks that this is Elijah's fault. And yet, how many of us, when we tell those stories of our lives, we make the good guy out to be the bad guy so we don't feel so bad about ourselves? That's what Ahab is doing in this situation. He is pointing at Elijah as though Elijah is the one who had done something wrong when it was really Ahab who had led the nation astray. So Elijah tells Ahab, listen, if you want to terrain, um, I can make that happen. Here's how this is going to happen. You meet me on Mount Carmel with 850 of these false prophets that your wife employs. There were 450 prophets of Baal, 400 of Asherah. She was like the female counterpart of Baal. And he says, you meet me on this mountain with these 850 prophets. Here's what we need to understand that when it says that, you know, these 850 prophets who eat at Jezebel's table. It had not rained for three years. The crops were dying. The livestock was dying. And the people of Israel were being taxed more heavily than ever because the king's crops weren't growing. The king's livestock was not flourishing. And so the only recourse was to tax the people more. And yet, when the nation is struggling, when the households of Israel cannot put food on the table, Ahab and Jezebel are using money taken from their citizens to feed 850 prophets of false gods. And so Elijah says, here's the deal. You're going to get those 850 freeloaders that we've been paying for as a nation. You're going to get them, but you're also going to get representatives of the 10 tribes of Israel. Now we think there's 12 tribes of Israel and you're right. But remember the two Southern tribes, they stayed and they formed the nation of Judah because when God ripped the kingdom out of Solomon's hands because of his disobedience, God said, I made a promise to David that the nation, that the kingly line would always stay in his family. So there was a smaller country of two tribes. That was David's family. And then there was the northern kingdom of 10 tribes. And that is where Elijah is. And so he says, get representatives of the 10 tribes of Israel so that they can see what's about to happen, so that they can go back to their villages, back to their tribes and tell everybody what happened, but also get those 850 freeloaders that we have been paying for. We're going to have a competition. We're going to have a competition once and for all, and it is going to be very, very public. Verse 20 says, so Ahab sent word throughout Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Quick pause here. He's not. This gives a little insight into what was going on in his brain. But remember, Obadiah just, well, we didn't actually read that passage because we're trying to save a little bit of time. When Obadiah introduced himself to Elijah, he said, by the way, there were these hundred prophets that Jezebel was trying to kill and I hid them in caves. They're waiting for you. You're kind of like the team mascot for the prophets. Um, Elijah knew that there were at least a hundred prophets left in Israel. And yet here he is saying, I am the only of the Lord's prophets left. God uses fallible people. He doesn't just use perfect and pretty people. He uses real people who make real mistakes. And here is a little glimmer of what we're going to see next week of what was wrong going on in Elijah's mind. He says, I am the only of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. 
Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood and not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God. And I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So when he's first preaching to the people, he says, hey, it's time for you to make a choice. They're silent, crickets, nothing. But once he says, we're going to have this competition, it's going to become clear for anybody and everybody which God is the real God. And they're like, well, Ahab can't argue with this. These false prophets that have the queen's money and the queen's power behind them, they can't argue with this. So they agree, hey, Elijah, we are going to worship whatever God provides fire. And they probably thought that no God was going to provide fire because how many times have you just been outside and have seen fire fall from heaven, right? Like they, they, okay, we will humor the prophets on either side and we will agree to this. So Elijah calls the prophets of Baal and Asherah, as well as these members of Israel to decide how long they're going to worship. He says, how long are you going to be limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And now that we have these representatives from all of the seats of leadership throughout Israel, all these different tribes, all these different families, their leaders are there. He addresses the nation and says, listen, you cannot have two loyalties. These are mutually exclusive. You cannot have both and when it comes to what God you're going to worship. You cannot have it both ways. The issue was not that Israel as a nation wanted to reject God and choose Baal, but rather they thought they could get away with serving both. They thought they could play it safe. They thought they could sit on the fence and not hurt anybody's feelings. And Elijah said, no, 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 we are deciding today, once and for all, who your loyalty is with. Which side are you on? Elijah said to the prophets of Baal in verse 25, choose one bowl and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So he says, you get the first pick in the draft, kind of like me, most fantasy football seasons. You get to, you get to choose uh, which bowl is the best bowl, which bowl is going to look the prettiest to your God. You, you set up your sacrifice, however you set up sacrifices, you get it ready. I will take the scrawny bowl that is left over. That's fine. But you guys go first. So they took the bowl given to them. They prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal answer us. They shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. So it's been several hours at this point, And now he's like, hey, it's time for me to start making fun of you. Um, Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought. Or busy. Or traveling. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now, this is what we would expect, right? Like Baal's not a real God. He's a carving of a rock or a tree. And these people think something's going to happen, but of course nothing's going to happen. But there was genuine belief there. They thought Hey, Baal, we are showing our loyalty to you. We believe earnestly. We're we're worshiping earnestly. Just because someone believes something to be true does not mean it's true. This whole idea of, well, that's your truth or that's my truth. This was their truth. And it was very much false. 
They're dancing. They're cutting themselves. They're trying to do anything and everything they can do to get Baal's attention. Now, verse 27 that we read from the NIV there, it said, um, shout louder. Surely he's God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Um, the ESV says at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry louder for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is reflect, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, either he is musing or he is relieving himself. I did not make that up. My middle school boy sense of humor did not write that. That was inspired by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Elijah, the prophet has the sensibilities of a middle school boy. And he's like, maybe he's in the can. Hey, why don't you give him a few more minutes of privacy? Again, I did not make that up. If you read it in the Hebrew, it's more explicit than relieving himself. I'll let you imagine what he's suggesting. But Elijah is really making fun of these guys at this point by suggesting this. Um, so they go first, they, they pray, they dance, they, they go around the altar all morning, all afternoon, howling and pleading, cutting themselves just to try to get this fake God to notice them. But obviously nothing happened. And when he starts mocking them, he isn't just mocking them. He is mocking their God. He is mocking the cultures of the Assyrians and the Phoenicians that would worship this God. In the ancient Near East, even if a person did not worship a specific God, he would at least look at the status of that God and would not take it for granted. When he is suggesting that Baal is occupied or relieving himself, that is about as big of a mockery as you could make of a God or as a, of, of a society as you could possibly make at that time. These prophets, these people in Israel that were worshiping Baal, they had risked their lives and their fortunes on a cause that was crumbling before their eyes. They could tell by hour one, ooh, this isn't going to work out. And by hour six, it must have been hot and embarrassing. I wonder at what point some of them are like, hey, can we slip away? There's like 850 prophets here. Can we, can we hit the exit before this thing ends poorly for us? Verse 30 says, uh, then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him and repaired the altar of the Lord. He didn't use a new altar. He said, this is an altar where God's people have worshiped him for generations, which had been torn down. Jezebel and her attempts to rid the nation of the worship of the one true God had torn down this altar. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sheaves of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down and the altar uh, ran down the altar and even filled the trench. So he digs a ditch. He makes an altar out of 12 stones because he's like, Hey guys, remember there's not 10 tribes of Israel. There's 12 tribes. This nonsense that we're going through as a nation right now is a part of this. You need to remember that we are a nation of 12 tribes, even though you're acting like we're just a nation of 10 tribes. And then he says, we're going to pour four pitchers on the sacrifice three times, a little math. I took college algebra twice. So I'm really good at math. Um, Four times three is 12 every single time. Again, he's saying 12 tribes of Israel, 12 stones, 12 pitchers of water. I want you to remember what God called our nation to be. I want you to remember how God called our nation to believe. 
And I'm going to make it as difficult as possible for this sacrifice to be lit. They might have had to like walk down to get salt water to find all this water. We don't know where it was coming from, if there was a brook or a river that hadn't quite dried up. But remember, there's no water. And he says, hey, I want you to pour a ton of water on top of this. Verse 36 says, at the time of the sacrifice, so it's time for the evening sacrifice. He's upholding a priestly tradition now, not just a prophetic tradition. The prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. This is a solemn address. This is a formal address. This is very different from the prayer that we see just the chapter before when the widow's son died and Elijah is praying that God would bring him back. This is a public prayer where he is giving a history lesson to the 850 false prophets, but also to the representatives of the 10 tribes that are there. He is praying about their history as a nation. He is praying through what God has done for them as a people and then said, God, remind them that you are a God who is turning their hearts back again. God, remind them that even though they have strayed, you are a God that turns hearts back to you. Even though people have wandered, you are a God that turns hearts back to you. This moment is cast as uh, this big monumental life or death occasion. He said, hey, we're going to make it between you and us. You guys have had hours and hours and hours to do this. I'm going to pray this one simple prayer. And when he's done praying, verse 38 says, then, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water and the trenches. When the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So God shows up and he shows up big time. It is emphatic. It is spectacular. And the people respond, which was what the original deal was. Hey, Whatever God shows up, that's the God that you're going to respond to. At the beginning of this chapter, at the beginning of this account, Elijah says, listen, there's no more fence sitting. There is no more playing it both ways. Whatever God shows up today, that will be the God you worship. And the people agreed, yes, that is the God that we will worship. The contest on Mount Carmel was not as often built between Elijah and these false prophets, but rather it was between Elijah's God and this false God, Baal. And once the people had declared their allegiance to the one true God, because God had shown up in a very real way to them, he said, okay, you've proved, you've claimed your allegiance. Now it's time for you to prove it. And it's not a happy ending for the false prophets of Baal. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone away. They seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. It's a happy way to end a Bible story with all of the false prophets, the people who had been freeloading off of the citizens, the people who had been leading the nation astray, the people who had been encouraging that God's prophets be hunted down and killed, that they themselves reaped what they had been sowing for the past several years. Again, we say sometimes that passages um, are descriptive and not prescriptive. Some say, hey, this is what happened. It is descriptive. And then some tell us how we should live. That is prescriptive. 
This is obviously a descriptive passage. We aren't being called to go out and slaughter people, but we can still apply these principles to our own faith. We know what it's like to want to have our cake and eat it too. We know what it's like to want the best of both worlds. We know what it's like to promise ourselves to God on Sunday, but then to go back to compromise once we're at work or once we're at school on Monday. I know, you know, we we all know what that's like. And it's a sad place to be, but God doesn't want half-hearted people. God doesn't want people that are trying to play both sides of their relationship with him and with the world. We might not have idols like they had in Israel at that time, but we all have things that compete with God. We have things that compete for our allegiances. We ought to be encouraged by this passage. We have a God who is eager to prove his presence in the life of the believer. We have a God who is calling believers' hearts back to him. Hey, you've strayed. I'm a God who calls hearts back to me. You've gone too long. You've gone too far. I'm a God who shows up in big and sometimes spectacular ways, or as we're going to see next week, a God who shows up in deeply personal ways to let his people know that he wants to draw them back into a relationship with himself. When this competition was done, once and for all, the people of Israel had no choice. They had agreed at the beginning, and here they were at the end, responding in worship. They've fallen on their face. They've declared their allegiance to God. And here's what I want us to notice as we wrap up. For them, it was not a gradual shift back to God. It was a gradual gradual shift away from God once the idol worship started to pervade their culture. But here in this moment, it was not a, okay, well, maybe, you know, we'll show up and we'll start worshiping some. If we're not, you know, if we're not away this weekend or if family's not in town, then we'll show up. It was an instantaneous. God showed up and they responded. God showed up and they said, oh, this is our God. And in an instant, they turned their allegiance from being kind of on the fence to being zealous for their God, so much so that we see the execution of these false prophets. Sometimes when God shows up and does what only he can do, the only response that we have is worship. And that's what we see here in this passage. God's people said, God, we we got it wrong. And instead of gradually coming back to you, we are all in right here, right now. Because when God shows up, the way that we respond is to worship him. So this morning, we are going to respond to what God does. We're going to respond to what his word says. We're not going to respond to a God who existed thousands of years ago, but rather to a God that is working and living in our world now. And we're going to say, God, sometimes I need to see it. I need you to prove yourself. And it's not going to be spectacular like fire from heaven, but there is this issue that I'm dealing with. God, please show yourself to be powerful in this situation. God, I need to experience it. There's this broken relationship that I don't think I can fix, but you say that you are a God of reconciliation and restoration. God, would you show up in a big way? And when God shows up, our response is worship. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Would you pray with me? God, would you cause us to worship you? Would you cause us to worship you based on who you are and what you have done? Father, thank you that you are a God that has provided. May we respond to that provision in worship. God, thank you that you are a God that has protected. 
May we respond to that protection in worship. God, thank you that you are a God who has sustained us as a church. You are a God that has sustained us as individuals and as families. God, may we respond now to the way that you have shown up for us. And may we respond in worship. Father, I pray that we would be reminded and challenged this morning. That you are not a God who is okay with your people sitting on the fence. You are not okay with your people trying to play both sides. But rather, you are a God who wants your people to be committed to you. Because you have demonstrated your commitment to us by sending your son for us. You have demonstrated your love for us in so many ways that we shouldn't and couldn't do anything besides respond in worship. So, Father, be glorified in us this morning by the way that we worship you. Bless us now as we continue to worship through the way that we sing, through the way that we give. Father, thank you for the ways that you continue to bless and sustain us. Bless us as we worship through the way that we fellowship with one another. Father, cause us to be people who choose you and who worship you and glorify you. And it's in Jesus' name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.